0: Romans 5 and we're only going to do one verse this week. Romans
1: 5:16.
0: It says, "And not as it was by one that sin, so is the gift." For the judgment was by one to condemnation, but the free gift is of many offenses unto justification. That's KJV. Let me read the ESV too, because sometimes KJV is a little harder to understand. Um, but let me read this in the ESV. It says, And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. So, I'm not going back up much because we've all kind of been here, but the way of review is obviously we've dealt with uh, Paul's declaring of the gospel, he's going to preach the gospel, and he deals with the bad news for two, two, two chapters, and then he gets into justification by faith alone, declares justification by faith alone, gives us the example of Abraham as one that was just before the law even existed. The the the. When I say the law exists, the Mosaic law, the law given to Moses, it hadn't even existed yet, and Abraham was justified by faith alone. And then we've been dealing with the fruit of justification, or the results of justification. So you stand just before God, but what does that mean? What else do I? What else happens? It's not just you're declared just, and you keep on going the same way that you were before you were declared just. Um, we saw that we have a peace with God. That's something that the world would never know. The world outside of Christ does not know what peace with God is. Now, some of them proclaim they have peace with God, but they don't really have peace with God. And unfortunately, if they perish without having a peace with God, they, there will never be another chance. Um, we saw that because of justification by faith alone, we rejoice, right? We saw that we rejoice, and it's not just that we rejoice. Because we're justified by faith, we rejoice as that in our tribulations. Even when we're going through the hardest times in this life, we can rejoice because we're justified by faith. Because I stand just before God, no matter what this world brings about, I can rejoice. And we grow through that too, right? It says, um, and we grow in patience and experience and hope through tribulations. So we rejoice in that. And then we saw, last week we started to look at this union with Adam. This, uh, what they call federal headship. This fact that Adam, when he sinned in the garden, you might as well have been there. That was you. That was you in the garden when when Adam sinned. But I would have done that, but you do. Right? I would have done that, but then look at your life right now. Do you not sin? Yes, you would have. That God put... You. The perfect representative in the garden for us, right? Perfect, and he sinned as our representative. And by his sin, what happened? Death passed upon men, right? Death, and we saw last week that where it says, and right here on we're on a page turning this. Death entered into the world, and death by sin. And so death passed upon all men, for all have sinned. So we all head to that one spot, that one, that future. We all have that future, do we not? That future of death. We're all headed to that. Whether young, old, healthy, unhealthy, we're all headed to the same spot. You drive by the cemeteries, that's your future. You can drive by many houses out here and say, man, I wish I could have that house. The house is so nice and beautiful. But guess what? You can drive by a cemetery and know that one one day you will be there. Every single one of us. Except for as a believer, we won't really be there. I think it was R.C. that said, on, when he's dead, if it says R.C. lies here, know that that's a lie. R.C. scroll lies here. Because he's not really there. Just like as we wouldn't be either, right? We're not in the grave. We go from this life to the next life. But so now let's get into our text here. We're still in that portion of our union with Adam and our union with Christ. That federal headship portion of Scripture. That people oftentimes have a problem with the federal headship of Adam. But the problem with that is if you think that that's bad, what about the federal headship of Christ? You have to reject the gospel in order to reject the federal headship of Adam. So let's look at this. It says in the free gift, I have three points first one is sin multiplied, the second one is sin unto condemnation, and the third is the free gift is given. The first point, let me read that verse again from the ESV. It says, and the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. I think in this text here, we can notice a few things should stand out to us. Those two things that are not like the result of that one man's sin. The first thing that we should no- take notice of is that following the trespass of Adam comes condemnation. Right? Following Adam's trespass comes condemnation. And following the free gift comes justification. That's one thing that's very clearly we can see in the text. If you just read the text, that's probably the first thing that you're going to see is that Adam's sin leads to condemnation, the free gift leads to justification. However, there's another thing that we must notice in the text. And I think we can actually miss this if we just give it a little cursory reading. If we're just reading right over top of it. And what we will see is sin leads to condemnation and the free gift leads to justification. We'll see that. But this other thing that we ought to see is notice... How many trespasses did it take to bring condemnation? How many trespasses did it take to bring condemnation? One. The judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. Then the free gift, what does it say in the text? In, in the text here it says, But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. So condemnation comes from one sin. Justification, the free gift, is said it was following many trespasses. So you see, the first Adam brought sin into the world by one sin. One sin. Not many, just one. God said, don't do this one thing, and he did it. One sin brought condemnation. But the second Adam, Christ, comes and conquers many sins, many trespasses right so sin is multiplying it started with one sin in Adam but it's many sins by the time the second Adam comes so what can we learn from this I think we can clearly learn that sin is not stagnant sin doesn't stay alone sin doesn't sit still sin multiplies like if you guys I know some of you younger people probably never even heard of this. But sin multiplies like gremlins in water. Right? (laughs) Let me show you. Turn back to Psalm chapter 1. Verse one, it says, "Blessed is the man that walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the way of the sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful." If you go on, it says, "But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law does he meditate day and night." That's this is one of my favorite psalms. I memorized this psalm a long time ago. Often times, it comes back in my mind. Blessed is this man but but do you see the progression do you see the progression in verse one he he and it's on i have underlined in in my bible it says blessed is the man that walketh and then he standeth and then he sitteth or in modern english he walks stands and sits right so you see a progression there he walks stands and sits so in other words if you walk By the counsel of the wicked, you will stand in the way of the sinners. And if you stand in the way of the sinners, you will sit in the seat of the scornful. Or in the seat of mockers and scoffers. There's a progression there. So, it's a progression in sin. From listening to the counsel of the wicked. That's what it says. When you walk in in the counsel of the ungodly. When you're listening to the counsel of the wicked, what happened? You will then start sitting in the seat with the scornful. You will stand in the way. You will sit with those that hate God. That's what that scornful means. It's those that mock and those that scoff. You will sit with them, people. What does that mean? That doesn't mean you're just sitting on a bus with them. It means you're sitting in fellowship with them. You go from listening to the counsel of the ungodly to sitting with those that hate God. There's a progression there. So in other words, do not give sin a foothold. Let's see another one. Turn to Joshua chapter 7. Joshua 7, verse 20. It says, And Achan answered Joshua and said, Indeed, I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel, and thus and thus have I done. When I saw among the spoils a goodly Babylonish garment, and two hundred shekels of silver, and a wedge of gold of fifty shekels weight. Then I coveted them, and took them, and behold, they are hid in the earth in the midst of my tent, and the silver under it. Achan's first, first sin by covetousness. Do you see that? He saw the spoils, is what he said. I saw the spoils. They looked good, right? That that money laying there, it looked good. I saw that, and then I coveted it. Then I wanted it. See, it, it wasn't sin just to see the spoils, right? It wasn't sinful just to see something right there, but he coveted it. And then what did he do? He, yeah, he stole it. It was theft. He goes from, from seeing something that he that in and of itself is not evil, but then to covetousness, which was a sin, and then from covetousness to theft. And then what happened? Then he wanted to deceive. He buried it. He hid it. His theft led to deceit, hiding the spoils. I want you to see something else in this narrative here. Look at verse uh, 10. And the Lord said unto Joshua, Get thee up. Wherefore lies thou upon thy face? Israel has sinned, and they have also transgressed my covenant, which I commanded them. For they have even taken of the accursed thing, and have also stolen and dis- 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 dissembled also, and they have put it in among their own stuff. Therefore, the children of Israel could not stand before their enemies, but their backs, but turned their backs before their enemies, be- because they were accursed neither will I be with you anymore, except you destroy the accursed thing from among you. Up, sanctify the people and say, sanctify yourselves against tomorrow. For thus saith the Lord God of Israel, There is an accursed thing in the midst of thee, O Israel. Thou canst not stand before thine enemies until you take away the accursed thing from you. His sin... This sin that Achan did, this is one guy that did this sin. What does God say? Israel has sinned. And what happened to the Israelites then? They got killed. They went into battle and died because of the sin of Achan. So his sin, it wasn't just that he saw the spoils and then he coveted them and then he stole them and then he hid them. But God killed people because of it. Israel has sin. So your sin doesn't only progress in actions, in the sense of you go from one sin to the next sin to the next sin, but it affects others as well. I can say this, even as our church here, right? And I'm not saying, I don't know any of you. So, well, I know probably some of to Sins that go on. But if we are talented, if God has given us the talent to serve the church, and we're in sin, and not using that talent, Does that not affect you? 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 It does, right? Sin never stays alone. Sin multiplies. It doesn't just affect you either. It affects people around you. And listen to that narrative right there. What did Achan do to the Israelites in this? He did nothing, right? All he did is stole some money from some pagans. And then buried it. What? It had no effect on Israel. But it did. Because they died because of it. His sin led to the death of Israelites. And God said, Israel has sinned. Sin is like leaven. It spreads and leads to death. In this narrative, it led to the death of Israelites. If you look down at verse 15 in the same chapter, it says, And it shall be... That he that is taken with the accursed thing shall be burnt with fire. He and all that he hath, because he has transgressed the covenant of the Lord, and because he hath wrought folly in Israel. Then verse 24 and 25. And Joshua and all of Israel with him took Achan, the son of Zerah, and the silver, and the garment, and the wedge of gold, and his sons, and his daughters, and his oxen, and his asses, and his sheep, and his tent, and all that he had. And they brought them into the valley of Achor. And Joshua said, Why hast thou troubled us? The Lord shall trouble thee this day. And all Israel stoned him with stones, and burnt them with fire, after they had stoned them with stones. They didn't play around with sin, did they? Why the Israelites were dying because of your sin. They killed him. So not only his sin didn't just multiply in the sense that he was doing this and then then doing that to cover it, and then then it led to the death of Israelites. Then it led to his own death. Sin multiplies. And This reminds me of a couple of other narratives. I'm not going to turn to them, but. Y'all are probably familiar with some of them. King David. The sin of King David when he saw Bathsheba. If David w- would have just been walking by and happened to glance out and see Bathsheba and turn his head and say, ooh, I don't see that, and go and do something else, that wouldn't have been sin, right? But what did David do? That's not what he did, did it? is it? He sinned when I mean, he saw her, and then he lusted after her. There all of a sudden it turns into sin. Seeing her was not sin, but he lusted. And lusting and covetousness are pretty much the same thing. Except for one's after goods and one's after a human. And remember, King David was after the sin of Achan. So King David knew about that narrative that we just saw. That sin that led to this, that that, that led to death, and led to death of Israelites. He knew about this. So he saw and lusted then he sent and inquired after her is what the narrative says and what was told to him he he sent and inquired after her after he saw her bathing Sends and inquires after her and what's told to him well tell me about this Bathsheba what was said that's Uriah's wife that's all that was said to him that's all that needed to be said right you need to know nothing else about this, David. That is Uriah's wife. You don't need to know where she goes, comes from. You don't need to know anything about her. That's Uriah's wife. In other words, keep your hands off and stop looking. That would have been an easy way of escape, wouldn't it have been? It would have been an easy way of escape. Okay, I get it. Sorry I asked. I, I shouldn't have done that. But he didn't escape. He stayed and wanted more. He then brought her to himself. He didn't just inquire about her then. He brings her to her and he lays with her and gets her pregnant. You see that sin multiplying? He lusted. He all all of a sudden inquires after her. Then he brings her to and lays with her. Now all of a sudden she's pregnant. Now the sin is multiplied to a point that you. It's past the point of turning back, right? What did David do? Did he repent? Does he go to Uriah and confess his sins to him at that point? And his sin against God? Did he do it? No, he didn't. What did he do? He schemed again. He schemed and lied. He tried to send Uriah to go be with his wife so Uriah would think that it was his child. What a good scheme that he was trying to put on. But Uriah, it says in the text, was an honorable man. And because Israel was at war and Uriah was a warrior, he would not go home. Because, what did he say? None of the other soldiers can go home. I'm not going home. I'm going back out to war with them. So he didn't do what David tried to scheme. So David repents then, right? Well, it's gone far enough. Maybe I should just repent. Okay, sorry, Uriah. I did this. No, he didn't. He schemed some more. He sent him out. In the war by himself, knowing it was going he was going to die. And the text says that David had him killed. David was the murderer there. It wasn't the other army that killed Uriah that was guilty. It was David that was guilty of that murder. So his sin led to death. It progressed and progressed and it grew to the point of death. And David could have stopped it. By and through repentance, but he enjoyed the pleasure of his sin for a season, until David spoke—or I mean, until Nathan spoke to him. Right? Nathan spoke to him in somewhat of a parable, where he says, there's, "David, there's a rich man who has who has many flocks and many herds, and then there's a poor man who has one little lamb, and that lamb's like a daughter to him." And the rich man, somebody came needing a lamb, and the rich man wouldn't give him the lamb, and he wouldn't took the poor man's lamb to give to him. And David got angry and said, that man should die. And then, what does Nathan say to him? You are that man. You are the one, King David, who has all this whole kingdom. And that poor Uriah right there, you went and took his, what little he had. And then you had him killed. And not only that, the baby with Bathsheba dies too. God said that baby's going to die. And it did. His sin multiplied. It kept going until death. One more narrative real quick. Ananias and Sapphira. During the early church, Zach kind of mentioned it earlier, but during the early church, everyone sold what they had. And it became a community, right? Where everything was in common. And they didn't have to do that. They, the early church did not have to do that. That's not a command that tells you, you must sell everything you have and give to the church and you guys can all be one big community. That's not a command. And even, David, or David, even Peter says it. He says, well, you can read about that in Acts chapter 4 of them selling everything, have everything in common. But in Acts chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira, they sold their possessions, right? But they kept a part of it back. Now, they didn't have to sell it. Peter told them, told them that, well, You didn't have to sell this. And even after you sold it, you could have kept 100% of the proceeds, could have been yours. But you lied. You came and said, I'm giving everything that I have, but you were keeping back a portion for yourself. And what does Peter say to them? You did not lie to men, but you lied to God. And if you ever want anybody that says, well, the Holy Spirit's not God, look at Acts chapter 5 in that portion right there. First he says you lied to the Holy Spirit, then he says you lied to God. The Holy Spirit is God. However, After selling it and keeping a portion, Peter goes to Ananias and he asks him about it. What did Ananias do? He lied. What happened to Ananias? Y'all know the story? He died immediately. Immediately. Died. Died. So he he started with this scheme that I'm going to sell all my stuff and I'm going to keep back a portion and I'm going to say I'm giving everything. So I look righteous, right? Then he lied to the Lord and God killed him. Right then. Ananias, gone. Then what did they do? Then they went and found Sapphira and asked her, is this what you gave? Everything that you had? And she, oh yes. What happened to Sapphira. She died immediately. That's church discipline, right? That's church discipline. We, hope, we pray to God and that, that ever comes around here, right? Lying to God and then God killing us right away? We wouldn't have a big church. People would be scared to come. The people are dying. Sin leads to death. You notice too that in these narratives it was mainly lust, and covetousness in all the narratives. These sins, they're in your heart and your mind too, right? But they multiply and progress and lead to death. Covetousness, I wouldn't know that you would ever covet it. Right? Because it's inside. I can't tell that when you look at something, ooh, I want that. When you say it within yourself, I don't know that. But they lead to other sins. What does Jesus say about this? Matthew 16, 24. If Jesus said unto his disciples, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whosoever shall save his life shall lose it. And whosoever shall lose his life for my sake shall find it. For what is a man profited if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? That's what we've seen pictures of right here. People trading material goods or, or lust or covetousness for their souls. Now, obviously God saved these people. I don't think anybody ever argued King David wasn't saved. And he penned scripture on it. I'm sure I sure hope he was. But those sins led to death. Lust and covetousness are root sins and they lead to bad fruit. These are sins of wanting what you don't have. And Jesus says, what gain is it if you gain the whole world and lose your soul? I say all of this to say that sin multiplies. And that's what we see here in Romans 5. From one sin to many sins. That's the first thing we can see from our text. The second thing is that sin leads to condemnation. It says, get back there. There it is. and the free gift is not like the result of one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. Sin leads to condemnation. One trespass brought condemnation. I think I've already spoken on this, but let's look more into it. It says the judgment by one was to condemnation. The one sin is to condemnation. The world word for condemnation here means a verdict, an adverse sentence or punishment. That's what this that's what sin gives us. Sin gives us a guilty verdict. That's one sin. That's one sin, remember. One sin led to condemnation. Your one sin, which we all have way more than one sin, but just one sin leads to condemnation, leads to a guilty verdict. It means that you're guilty before God. One sin leads to judgment, and that judgment is condemnation. It wasn't many sins, but one. But that's not fair, right? That's not fair. One sin leads to eternal condemnation, right? But let me put it to you like this. If you go out of here today and murder one person, should you be condemned? That's just one sin. Just one. But that's a really bad one though, right? I mean, come on, of course murder deserves condemnation. Just just one sin. So let me ask you this. Do you think any sin against the Almighty Holy Creator is less than that? Do you actually think that your sin against another finite creature is worse than an infinite sin against your creator? We do happen to think us I mean, humans think like that though, don't we? As if my sin against you was worse than my sin against God. Let me say this that every sin I get commit against you is ultimately a sin against God, too, right? And that sin equals and earns you condemnation. It earns you a guilty brother. In the courtroom of heaven, the gavel has fallen, and you are declared guilty by one sin. And I know we've seen this many times in Romans so far, haven't we? However, now as Paul is teaching us of our union with Adam, of him being our federal head, he's demonstrating that because of Adam's sin, the gavel has fallen against all of humanity. Because of Adam's sin, God declares us all guilty. Every single one of us. This is very clear from our text. Turn, if you can will, back to Romans chapter 5. I'm going to look down at verse 18 there. And verse 18 says about the same thing. Therefore, as by one offense, as by the offense of one, judgment came upon all men to condemnation. Even so, by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. Therefore, as by the offense of one, judgment came upon all men to condemnation. Now I'm going to wait to get into verse 18. But this verse is almost identical to verse 16. I think it has a couple little truths I want to pull out. That's why I'm going to wait until I get there. I don't want uh, want to keep you all here all day. One transgression resulted in condemnation to all men. And it doesn't just mean men. Sorry, ladies. It's the word anthropos. It means mankind. Mankind. Because of Adam's sin, as our federal head, we all stand guilty before God. We all are owed, owed condemnation. So what is that condemnation? What is the condemnation, right? That's, that's the question we should ask when we see that word. If the judgment against sin and humanity is condemnation... What is condemnation? What's well, a topic that we don't like to discuss very often, do we? We don't like to talk about it. It's a topic that certain smiling preachers don't ever talk about. The condemnation is eternal hell. That's the condemnation that was earned by sin. One sin earned eternal hell by the original sin of Adam and by your actual sins. For those who may want to argue that they shouldn't be guilty because of Adam's sin, they're all arguing it as sinners. You realize that? You want to argue that I shouldn't be guilty because of Adam's sin. Well, okay, that's okay. We'll throw that out the window. What about yours? You have your own sins. You can't argue against the, the, the sin of Adam because you have your own sins too. You will stand guilty because of those sins too. The truth is we are all guilty in Adam. But outside of Christ, standing before the Lord on that great and dreadful day, your sins will be held against you if you're outside of Christ. Your lust, your covetousness, your sins of omission and commission, your sins of not loving God and not loving your neighbor, you will be held accountable for those sins. Those are your sins. They have your name on them. You own them. And they lead to condemnation. And we as humans can't escape this. And we face the Almighty on that day, there will be no excuses. We've already said all that in Romans chapter 3. There will be no excuses. Every mouth will be stopped is what it says. You will not be able to say, I did not know. Outside of Christ, we would be cast into hell, every single one of us. That's what our condemnation would be. There will be no mercy shown, no love shown, only hatred and wrath by the Almighty to those that live their life breaking His laws. You say, but that sounds mean, doesn't it? That sounds mean. Why would God do that? That sounds mean. Let me put, a, give you another picture here. A serial killer out here on the loose. He's murdered person after person after person after person. Well, He shows up at your house in the middle of the night and murders your family. Then the next day he shows up in your neighbor's house and murders their whole family. And then the next day, the next neighbor and murders their whole family. And he keeps going and going and going. And one day he gets caught. Should mercy be shown? Remember, mercy is not getting what you deserve. Yeah. What did the man what would that man deserve? He would deserve death, right? He's all he's brought is death. He deserves that. Or should we let him go free, as though he's never committed a crime? We would demand justice. What that would be mean, right? Isn't that what we do with God? We go about breaking his law day after day after day after day, and then all of a sudden, you, you, you think when that person dies, it's mean of God to cast them into hell? Our view of sin and justice is skewed. We deserve that very thing in the courtroom of God. We deserve justice, not mercy. We don't deserve mercy. We deserve to be crushed under the hand of the Almighty. I just saw this quote yesterday by Vodibacham. It says, do you know it was His mercy that woke you up this morning? Because His judgment should have killed you last night. This is the condemnation we've earned. God rightly and justly displays it on those outside of Christ. That's the condemnation. Being told, I never knew you. Depart from me, you worker of iniquity. And being cast into everlasting torments. That's the condemnation. The smoke of their torment ascends up forever and ever, as it says in the book of Revelation. It says, where the worm dies not, and where the only thing you'll be hearing is weeping and gnashing of teeth as the wrath of God is being poured out upon you in outer darkness, forever, never letting up for one second. That's what condemnation is. And that's what we all deserve. Yes, we deserve it because of Adam's sin as a representative, as our head, but also because of what we've done. All of us here have that same standing. We're all guilty. We all deserve condemnation. Not simply because of Adam, even though we do because of Adam, but because of our own sins. But the good news is, there's a free gift. Right? Sin multiplies. Sin unto condemnation. And the free gift is different. There's a free gift, and that's what we're all here for, right? I don't think we wake up in the morning, skipping the church, oh yay, we're going to hear about sin and death and hell. Right? That's not what we come here for. I sure hope not. But rather, we come to church ready to worship because of Christ and righteousness and eternal life that's been given to us. The free gift is of many offenses unto justification. That's what the text says. And unfortunately, this small portion of the text is a whole sermon in and of itself. And I have one one point on it. But we can easily see three points in this. What is the free gift? The many offenses and unto justification we see those three points right there so let me answer this first question what is the free gift the free gift is different what is the free gift we kind of dealt with it a little bit last week but we all we didn't deal with the word free last week but it says in Romans 6 23 the wages of sin is death Right? That's what our sin has earned us, is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Right? So the gift of God is eternal through Jesus Christ. I want to see something here though. I read an article this past week. And it was about grace. And the difference. It was written about grace. And it was the difference between cheap grace and costly grace. And I'm sure you've heard these before. These uh, people that say negative things about cheap grace. Here's my issue with with it first. So first, grace is not costly. Second, grace is also not cheap. It is not costly and it is not cheap. It is free. It's not costly, it's not cheap, it is free. Free grace. It's totally free. It costs you absolutely nothing, and we here in America can certainly understand this difference, right? We understand in our uh, consumeristic culture what the difference between costly, cheap, and free is. Titus d- demonstrated that this morning when we went to the store. Oh, it's free! And grabbed a book. Like, what do you understand what free? That's what. That's we understand that. Grace is free and totally free. Turn with me to Isaiah, chapter 55. In verse 1. Isaiah
1: 55, verse 1.
0: I think this is insane. Like, really, come here. Here's I got a gallon of milk. I got it from Walmart, and you can have it for free. Here's some wine too. Here, here's some bread too. No, this is pointing to salvation. Remember, this happened after Isaiah 53. We know what happened in Isaiah 53, right? With the with the the Messiah being broken and crushed for our sins. And then in Isaiah 55, he says, "Now come." ye to the waters, you who have no money. Or put it this way, you who have no righteousness of your own. You can't earn this. You are completely broke. As a song we just sang, come all you unfaithful. You can't earn this. Come, buy and eat, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Yes, you've earned condemnation. And you have no righteousness to speak of, but come, eat. Come ye to the waters. As we can see in the New Testament, to the fount of living water, to Jesus Christ. Come to Christ. It's free. Well, we say, but I must fix my life first, right? No. It's free. You must not do anything but come to Him. But I'm a horrible sinner. Come, eat, drink at the table of God. That's what the text is saying. But I'm a murderer. I'm a prostitute, right? What did Jesus say to those people? Come ye who are heavy laden. Come unto me, you all ye that are heavy laden, and labor, and I will give you rest. That was spoken to those people, to the worst in culture. Come unto me. He didn't say go fix your life first and then come. He said come, now. It's free, it's a free gift. I'm sure the children in here, I know y'all are looking forward to Christmas. And y'all know what a free gift is, right? On Christmas day, how much we had to pay for those gifts? They are paid for by another, right? When we get those gifts and we open them, we we don't have to pay. I I pay you for this gift first. No, you open it. It's free. They're free to you. And that's what Christmas is actually supposed to be about, right? The free gift that God gave His Son, that whosoever believes in Him will have everlasting life and shall not come, come under condemnation that condemnation that you earned and rightfully deserved was soaked up by the son for his elect. Those many offenses you have committed were placed on him and he was crushed. He received that condemnation. This is what Christmas is about. It wasn't just about some baby being born. It was about that. That you earned condemnation. And the Father has given you a free gift in His Son. And crushed your sin on Him for you. He received condemnation. And gives eternal life to those that the Father had given Him. But they will come to Him. This is a truth I think sometimes us Reformed folks skip over. We come to Christ. I know we, we think that almost we almost tend to lean towards the hyper calvinism that, that thinks that, whoa, we don't want to preach Christ to anybody. No. We only preach Christ to people, and we call them to come to Christ. Repent and believe. Yes, election, regeneration, faith, and repentance are gifts, but we still believe and repent, right? And we still come to Christ. It says in the Psalms, "Thy people will be made, or Thy people will be willing in the day of Thy power." God makes us willing, and we willingly come to Christ. It says in John chapter one, two: "As many as received Him, to them He gave power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on His name." It's a free gift that is received by His elect, and it's under justification. The free gift is unto justification. Meaning, though you are owed condemnation, a guilty verdict, you are declared just in God Because your sins have been paid for. All of them, too. Past, present, and future. Those sins that you're going to do next week, if God allows you to have another week, they've already been paid for. They're gone. But Jeremy, doesn't that give somebody license to sin? Well, Paul is going to deal with that. Why? Because that was the argument against Paul, too. Uh, Grace can't be free apart from works, or people will think that they can sin all they want. What did Paul say? Where sin abounded, grace did much more Now, Where sin multiplied, God's free gift of grace multiplied more. It says in uh, Romans chapter 8, it says, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. Even, but, but I, I did this sin today. No condemnation. But I've been horrible. I haven't done anything for Christ. Today. No condemnation. The free gift is unto justification. You stand just before God. Do you believe that? That's what the free gift means. It means if you have this gift, you have no condemnation. None. Here or after. None. He propitiated for it, He took it away. Every single last drop of condemnation I would do unto you is gone in Christ. So come, drink. Come, buy milk and wine. Come to the fount of living water and drink freely without money, and without cost. Amen. Our application portion here.
1: First is the call to repentance.
0: The question I have is, have you come to Him? Not just come to church. Not just come to Bible reading. Not just come to prayer. Not just come to evangelism. Not just come to baptism or to the Lord's Supper, but have you come to Him. That's what Paul's life revolved around. Y'all realize that. The, The book that we're going through, this man lived, breathed, and died the gospel. That was it. And I pray ours does as well. Paul's writing to the Romans was him writing the gospel and expounding it to them. Explaining all that it means to be saved in Christ but I'll argue that it wasn't simply for academic purposes. It wasn't just to simply teach you what the Gospel is. The book of Romans wasn't just written as a school book so you could could study it to, to be smarter or to just teach people. Even though, yes, that is part of it, but it was also for edification purposes. Right? He wanted the church to be edified. And it was also for evangelistic purposes that's what the gospel does yes the gospel teaches us but the gospel also edifies us and the gospel also is what we use in evangelism we should be studying this book to be better equipped to take the gospel to the lost and if you're here this morning in lost as I've already mentioned come to him come in faith trusting in the Savior who died for sin, was risen from the grave and ascended up to the right hand of the Father, where He sits down victorious and makes intercession for us. Come to Him. Repent of your sin that does so easily beset you. Repent from that sin. Turn from that sin. Turn to Christ who is risen and seated at the right hand of the Father. Leave that sin. It will only lead to condemnation in the end anyway. Is that what you want? Yes, it's pleasurable for a while, right? I mean, the Scriptures tell us that. There's pleasure in sin for a season. There's pleasure in sin for a, for a little bit, but what does it lead to? Death. Repent of it and come to Him who is pleasure forevermore. Y'all know that song, right? Where it says, at the right hand are pleasures forevermore. Who's at the right hand? Christ. He is pleasant forevermore. The pleasure of sin will stop, but the pleasure of knowing Christ will never cease. Come to Him in repentance. And brethren, Christians here, as was mentioned about sin multiplying, you know how to stop it from multiplying, right? We all in here know how to stop sin from multiplying. How could a David stop that chain? How could David could have stopped that along that, along that big chain? chain of, of sin and death. He could have stopped it. How could he have stopped it? Through repentance. Yes, we sin. Yes, we fail. Yes, we do stupid things. that We ought even we even do things that we know better and know we ought not to do it, right? However, what do you do when you do them? Keep going? Just keep going. You know, I lied. Now i got to deceive again and do this and do that and do this to try to cover that one sin that I did. Just repent. It's now the time to repent. Not later. Not tomorrow. Not after I get a little bit more taste of this sin. But now, this morning, right here, Christ's blood was spilt to save His people from their sins. As it says in Matthew chapter 1, verse 21. In Ezekiel thirty-six, twenty-six, one of my favorite verses here, it says, A new heart also will I give to you, and a new spirit will I put within you. And I will take away the stony heart, out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you shall keep my judgments and do them. Do you have this new heart? As a believer, you do. Every believer has a new heart. That's called regeneration. If you have this new heart, what does it say? God says He will cause you. That's, God is the caller. God will cause you to walk in His statutes and keep His judgments and do them. God will do this. So if you're not doing that, what must you do? Repent, right? Go back to the cross. Go back to the empty grave. That's where where our minds ought to go often, right? To that cross and to that empty grave. Is the stone rolled away? If the stone is rolled away and I believe that, so are my sins. My sins are rolled away with that stone. And He is risen. Don't give sin a foothold in your life. It will destroy you. It will multiply unto death. Repent this morning of it and come worship and free. The second point is to call the Lord. You know that time, it's time to lace up the bootstraps, right? God has not called us to be lazy when Jesus said come unto me and I'll give you rest that didn't mean come unto me and you can just be a lazy bum that's not what it meant it means rest from your sin rest from trying to work your way into the kingdom rest from trying to earn your own righteousness because you'll never do it it says in Ephesians chapter 2 I might as well just do 8 through 10. It says, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourself. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Now listen, verse 10 it says, For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works. We are created in Christ Jesus unto good works. Get to work. (laughs) Right? Right? You can't read that section and think, you must do anything but just lay your life down for Christ. And He says, which He ordained beforehand that we should walk in them. Those good works, He ordained them beforehand that we should walk in them. Do good works. Which ones? The ones the Scripture tells us. Feed the hungry, right? Take care of the poor. What about the fatherless and widows? This really is not an option for a Christian. This isn't something that that we could be like, well, I'm kind of indifferent about it. Scripture commands this stuff. Especially in this season that we're celebrating, right? We see people everywhere talking about Christmas and bringing glad tidings and giving gifts. We see this all over the place, do we not? Mm
1: -hmm. But why?
0: Most, not because they know Christ. They celebrate Christmas, but they don't know Christ. They go around and say Merry Christmas, but they don't know Christ. They have a nativity scene in the front yard that's this big with lights on it, but they don't know who Christ is. It's just tradition. You know the fiddler on the roof? Y'all ever see that? That's what Christmas is to most people. It's just tradition. You, who know Christ, have such a great opportunity during this season to talk about Christ. Right? You can't tell me not to talk about Christ when you've got a tidby scene right here. He's everywhere right now. Even the very name of of the holiday, His name's in it. What will you do in this season for his name's sake? Buy your kids a bunch of toys. You know, that stack up in on all the other toys that they've gotten and that are broken and that they don't care about. Just keep on stacking them up, just buy them a whole bunch of toys. Spend every dollar you have on gifts that rust and decay. Put yourself in debt. I've seen this so much. Put yourself in debt a holiday that you don't even really know what it means?
1: Yeah, I want to tell it, please.
0: Or are you going to lay down your life for the Gospel? We call we call That's what our call is. And that never changes. It doesn't matter if it's December or if it's June. That's our call. Lay down the life, your life for the Gospel. Now I know are a lot of Christians that don't like this holiday because it's become consumer driven and because you know, the whole Santa Claus... Stuff <laughs> but it's everywhere, right? Why not take this opportunity to help someone in need? right? Maybe even somebody you don't know, then speak to them about the free gift that was given to us two thousand years ago. the free gift of God's son. And if he spared not his own son, but he delivered him up for us. How shall not he also with him freely give us all things? So, in other words, our call to war is go to work, Christian, for His glory. You are an ambassador in a foreign land with the gift that God uses to save the lost. Preach the gospel and do good works. Amen. Amen.